Guys, are you ready? All right. If you if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Um, but we're going to be in Luke chapter 12 this morning. It's another heartwarming text. <laughs> You'll see what I mean in a moment. You could probably tell by the title of this sermon uh, that it's going to get real in here. But Luke 12 verses 49 to 59 is where we're going to be. I'll give you a moment to get there, read, and then pray. But even as you turn there, I, I encourage you to remember, and I've been praying even throughout the week, just that our expectation for God to speak, our anticipation um, of His revelation, of His movement among us, uh, uh, I, I've been wanting us, as we come to God's Word, to feel that. To grow in that. I think sometimes as Christians we can take for granted what it is that we're doing when we open this book. The reality is is that God tells us that when we come to his word, he speaks. And when two or three are gathered in his name, he's there. So he's here this morning, even as we begin by reading his word here. Luke 12, verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Okay, let's pray. (laughs) Lord, there are not very many like you in the world who speak the truth in love. So many of us we speak, but we speak not out of love for others and not always the truth. We, we twist the truth and we speak in love for ourselves. But God, you come in these moments to us and you tell us what we need to hear, whether we like it or not. Because you love us. Because you desire us to be on the right side of your judgment. Because you desire, we have life. 
and that abundantly. So Jesus, I pray that these sobering words would be used this morning by your Holy Spirit to awaken repentance and faith, to, to, to alert us to the dire straits we are in if we are not in Christ, and to send us fleeing to the cross, the only solution to life's deepest ill. The wrath of God on the sinfulness of man. I ask you to do all of these things and abundantly more. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we, um, if I recall, I, I introduced the, the sermon by, by saying that, ah, the concept of waiting, which our text last week was dealing with, is unpopular. But it's biblical. Well, I suppose I, I could begin this morning's sermon with the same basic idea regarding the subject of judgment. That I, I don't know if there has ever been a time in our in you know history where a culture has been so opposed to the idea of judgment. Whether it's you making judgment on me. Or God himself making judgment on me. Our culture has no place for that. It is, it is indigestible. <laughs> it is detestable. There is no room in our culture for this idea of someone, even if it be God, outside and over me telling me who I must be. No way. Not for the rugged Western American individual, are you kidding me? And yet, here in our text, Jesus is going to have none of it. He's not going to play ball with us. This text is going to press in and force us to deal with this subject of judgment, in particular, the, the coming judgment of God in Christ. A judgment that awaits the world. That there is an absolute, objective reality, authority outside of us. And we're going to have to give an account. Everything in us bristles. And yet Jesus doesn't stutter. He's, he's speaking plainly to us here. He wants us to consider it. Therefore, there are four things from this text that I want to bring out, four observations I want to make regarding this idea of the, the coming judgment of uh, Christ. Uh, one, it is desirable. Two, it is divisive. Three, it is dire. And fourth, it is, praise God, delayed. Just uh, full disclosure, I'm going to spend the great majority of the message on this first point. So if you're looking at your watches and the first point's rolling on, you're going, he's got three more. Don't worry. I will uh, do my best to get through those last three quickly. But the first one's going to set it all up. So I wanted to linger there longer with you. Um, so first, it is desirable. This idea of the coming judgment of God in Christ, in fact, is desirable. Now, I recognize that there is perhaps nothing more countercultural that I could say than that. 
I don't know if anyone, even Christians necessarily, would give a hearty amen to, yes, it is good, it is desirable. Come on, judgment. But before I show you why that is the case, I think I first need to make the case that Jesus is, in fact, even, especially there in verse 49, talking about the coming judgment in particular. Because there are various interpretations of this text. I just want to show you briefly why I would take it as Jesus speaking about the judgment that is to come. Um, Look at verse 49 again with me for a moment. He says this, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Now, Jesus is speaking of having come to cast fire on the earth, and therefore the question that we are asking ourselves here at the beginning is just simply, what does that refer to? What is he talking about? Certainly it doesn't sound very nice, although I imagine some interpreters have said, oh, he's probably talking about Pentecost when the tongues of you know, fire kind of landed and the Spirit was blood. But the reality is, we get a sense he's talking about something difficult, something devastating. And I think he's, he's talking about the coming judgment. Two reasons why. I'll, I'll give you two reasons. One is a contextual reason and one um, is because of the imagery that he uses. With regard to the context, what we notice is that on either side of verse 49, it's the second coming of Jesus and the judgment, the last day judgment that's in view. So last week our text had to do with, hey, be dressed and ready for action and wait because I go but I'm coming back and when I come back, if I find my servants doing X, Y, and Z, it's not going to go well. There's going to be judgment. And then that's clearly also what we see at the end of our text this morning in verses 54 and 59, where he's talking about, hey, listen, uh, you don't want to get into that courtroom. I suggest you try to settle uh, matters before you get there, because it's coming. Judgment is coming. So there's contextually indicators, I think, that he's talking about this, this, this coming judgment, um, this last day judgment that awaits all of humanity. But then looking at the imagery that Jesus uses in particular here, we get even more a sense that this is what is in view. He talks about coming to cast fire. Casting fire, it's an image that everywhere except for one place in Luke where uh, he's literally talking about a campfire and Peter's out there on the campfire. Every other place, this idea, this image of fire in Luke's gospel refers to the last day uh, judgment that is coming. I'll give you a couple of texts. Luke 3.17, this is when John the Baptist is talking about what the Messiah is going to do. And he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You remember what John had said earlier, that the axe is already laid at the the root of the, the tree there in Israel. And unless they bear fruit, it's going to get cut down and thrown into the fire. There's this idea of Judgment is coming. It's not pleasant, but it is a reality. Or you could look at Jesus' own words in Luke 17, 29 through 30, which really is an amazing parallel to our text this morning. Jesus says this, On the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And then he says this, So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. I don't know if you know that story from the Old Testament, 
Well, that was not too pleasant for Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And yet he says the same sort of thing is coming for the world when the sun is revealed in glory. So the context and the imagery utilized here seem to indicate, I think, clearly, he's talking about this last day judgment, this coming judgment. But now this just sets up the question that I want to ask, because I am saying here uh, that this coming judgment is desirable, and I'm keying that off of Jesus, because look, Jesus is actually saying, yes, okay, I'm talking about fire, I'm talking about judgment, and guess what? I long for it. I desire it. Did you catch that? Look at verse 49 again. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood. It's kind of like an old way of saying. The the literal Greek there is is thelo, which means I wish, I want, I desire. Would that, I wish that, I desire that that fire were already kindled. That's the mouth of Jesus. And we look at uh, words like this, perhaps, that, that roll off of his lips and, we, and we, we're troubled by it. We, we, we might initially recoil and think, gosh, that doesn't sound like the Jesus that I know. This is what's so beautiful, a little uh, parenthesis here. This is what's so beautiful about teaching through the Bible, uh, verse by verse, is I have to deal with these and you do too. We don't just get to you know, cherry pick our favorites. We come and you know, we, have to, we have to wrestle with this. But I hope you'll be richer because of it. And your faith will actually be stronger because of it. But our initial question, right, is, gosh, this doesn't sound like the Jesus that I know. The one who's like stroking sheep and his hair is all feathered and he looks nice and I want to like hang out with him. This doesn't sound like the God that I know. Right, like think of some of the texts that come to our mind at this point, like John 3.17, where we're told God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Did not! <laughs> but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Put that one on my coffee mug. No one has Luke 12.49 on their mug. In and out's not putting that one under their soda cup, right? We like the... John three sixteen seventeen that sort of stuff. Or when we think of God, we go, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought God was slow to anger. Wait a minute, I thought God takes no delight, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather longs that they would turn and live. How does this, I would that the fire were already kindled, match with that? We might be prone to think, gosh, is Jesus just kind of breaking protocol here? Like there's like a momentary lapse of sin in an otherwise perfect life. Like even Jesus has his moments. Like he woke up on the wrong side of the cot or whatever this morning. I don't know if he even, he said the foxes have holes, birds have nests. He have nowhere to lay his head. No wonder he's grumpy, right? <laughs> is that what's happening here? No. No. This is not contradictory. What we see upon closer examination, and I hope to make the case for you now, is that verse 49 is not contradicting what we know of the mercy heart of God. It is simply highlighting a different aspect of it. It's giving us a complementary perspective on it. 
Jesus here is not denying, I think, that he desires for none to perish and for all to be saved. But he is saying, rather, that he longs for the day when unrepentant, rampant evil will be done away with. That he longs for the day when all that is wrong will be made right. You see, somewhere along the way, brothers and sisters, we miss the fact that the coming judgment is actually a part of the good news. It's that day when God makes all that is wrong right. It's that day when God, the only righteous judge, who cannot be bribed and will not be swayed one way or the other, but will stand true, will even out the balances and the scales and make sure that everything is as it ought to have been. The coming judgment is actually a part of the good news. It's not at odds with His goodness and love, but is in fact an expression of it. It doesn't sit right on us initially. But my goodness, read your Bibles and you will see the saints of old longing for this day. That's why the Bible ends, the book of Revelation, Amen, come Lord Jesus! What are they longing for? The martyrs under the altar, how long until you, 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 you make this right? See, we get so used to the fallen world that we're in, we don't even realize how fallen and broken it is. Jesus shows up and goes, gosh, I wish I could make it all right right now. Do away with evil now. It's not an expression of his irritation. It's an expression of his love. It's actually part of the good news. Here's an interesting text for you. Paul himself, Romans 2.16, actually explicitly brings together the coming judgment of God in Christ and the good news, the gospel. Here's what he says. He writes of a day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. (laughs) He says, it's a part of the gospel. It's part and parcel with the good news that God is going to judge the secrets of men in Jesus Christ. Now we look at that, I know, and we kind of go, gosh, I I, I don't know if that's really how I read these words. And when I turn, I'm like, I'm going to throw you into the lake of fire and there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth and all this horrifying. This sounds horrible. This doesn't sound good news at all. It sounds bad. You've been there? I've been there. But what I want to ask you is since when... Is justice a bad thing? Certainly justice really is only maybe a bad thing if you fall on the wrong side of it. If you are the rebel, the sinner, the the, the God-loathing, the one who just wants your life here and now the way you want it, and you're enlisting everyone else into your service as your slaves, and you, well, sure, then the coming of the one who's going to make things right is is a bad day. You lost all your power, you lost all your stuff in that day. But if you're on the side with the children of God and you are longing, waiting for the one who will vindicate his glory, uphold the truth of his word, and and stand in the gap for you, and make all the wrong right, 
Well, goodness gracious, it doesn't get any greater than that day, does it? I'll continue to build this out because I'm sure that's not yet convincing. In Genesis 15, 13 to 14, it's very interesting. God tells Abraham that the people who will come forth from him will end up in Egypt and they'll end up in slavery. They'll end up in the house of bondage. And this is what he says in verse verse, uh, uh, 13. But he says, I will bring judgment on the nation. I will bring judgment on Egypt. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So here's what's coming into view here. That's so interesting. If you're Egypt, the exodus is the worst day of your life. The executing of God's judgment, his righteous wrath, to release those whom you have been afflicting and enslaving for your own selfish ends. That's a bad day for you. God says, I will judge that nation. But if you're Israel, the exodus, I mean, that is, that is the preeminent emblem of what redemption is that's strung throughout the entire Old and New Testaments from that point forward. I am the God of the Exodus. God would just keep pointing them back to that. Even Jesus will point people back to say, I'm fulfilling what all of that really stood for. You see, on the one side of the coin, it's judgment. It's plagues. It looks no good. On the other side of the coin, it's redemption. It's salvation. It's life. It's song. What are they doing? Exodus 15 on the other side of the Red Sea. But singing and dancing for joy. To put it another way, heaven would not be heaven if evil and sin were still permitted there. You catch that? If it were just kind of... If God's like, you know what? Ah, Egyptians... You know, I'm sorry, I'm being a little harsh here. Pharaoh, go on through. <laughs> and, and, and they pass on with the, with the Israelites into the other side, and then they capture them, and it's over. That's no heaven. That's not what we long for. We long for evil to be made an end of. True freedom and deliverance and redemption. Really... Um, a lot of this started in my heart um, in the text we were looking at last week. So if you recall, last week, if you, if you were here, we looked at Jesus kind of sharing this parable about the coming judgment. And um, he talks about, it gives some really vulgar, hard language there that we looked at. In particular, I think it's verse 46 where he says, listen, I'm... If I come and I find the one I set over my house doing something to my servants that I don't think is appropriate, exploiting, whatever, I'm going to cut that man in two or into pieces. Now, I said something last week that I went home and I thought more about. Last week, I, I said, you know what? In our weaker moments, don't you come to some of those hard texts in the Bible like that, and you kind of go, gosh, I wish that I could remove that, kind of edit it out of the Bible, just kind of strike it, uh, cut in pieces, that doesn't sound so nice. I'm a little embarrassed of this kind of God. I don't want other people to read about that. It sounds a little bit 
uh, I don't know, uh, aggressive, macabre, uh, masochistic, all that. Like, what is this? Cutting. This sounds scary to me. Let's just kind of cut that out. I don't like it. But as I reflected on these things and my initial sentiments regarding this idea of God's judgment, what I realized is that my responses here actually tell uh, me more about myself than it does about anything else. And here's what I mean. If I do not long for God to come in judgment, if I think that God is rather harsh for talking like this and I wish he wouldn't, well then I think what I'm doing is betraying the fact that I really haven't brushed up against much evil in my life. And consequently, I kind of, um, I kind of have an insufficient estimation of evil. So think with me, if up to this point my life has gone pretty well, and I would say absolutely it has. If you were to compare, you know, what's going on in the world and what people experience, gosh, pretty easy going, nice, happy life. Have people been mean to me and say bad things about me? Oh, sure, fine. But on the whole, it's been pretty good. If that's the case, if that's been our experience, then oftentimes the responses of God's judgment like this or the, the verses that talk about him come seem like a, a drastic overreaction. Whoa, step back, that's mean. Don't do that. I wish that wasn't there. But now on the other side, if your story has gone a little bit differently than mine, if you're on the side where you've experienced some of the raw unbridled, uncensored muck of this world, like I know some of you have, whether that's physical abuse, sexual abuse, rape, molestation, you know, theft, even you've known people perhaps that have been murdered, whatever it may be. I mean, some of us have had some horrid, horrid stuff done to us. And if that's the case... If that's your story, my guess is you read these texts a little differently. My guess is you read of of, of God coming in and judgment and all these things on evil. And honestly, the contemplation of that is the only thing that can make you stay sane in the midst of the the trials and the suffering. Is the idea that there is a judge who's going to come and make this right someday. That's just my guess. To think about it even further, and again, forgive me if this goes into a dark, twisted place, but this is people's reality. Here's what I was considering, and I'd ask you just to consider it with me. Imagine that something along the lines of what was happening in Sodom when Lot's day, when you've got this angry mob of people aggressive, lustful, sexualized people pounding on the door. Imagine that's happening at my house. Imagine there's all these, these, these men pounding on the door outside and they're breaking the windows and they want my girls. They want my daughters. They saw them out playing the parent, whatever it may be. Here they, they want to rape. They want to have their fill with my girls. They're pounding on the door. They're breaking the windows. I'm huddled in the back. 
wishing that I'd bought a shotgun like my dad told me to. (laughs) Huddled in the back, crying, locked the door. But they're coming into my house and they are coming for my girls. Now, is not the sound of police sirens off in the distance, growing louder with every second as they make their way through the neighborhood and they're coming down my street. Is not that sound the sound of salvation? Is that not the greatest news in all the world for me in that moment? That the law would come and crash down on the wickedness that was about to engulf me. Not bad news in that day. Good news. Really, the illustration I just gave is not all that different from the situation in the parable Jesus was describing when he's going to cut a guy in two. The story there, if you remember, is okay, I'm going to set this manager over my house, but then here's what's going to happen. If this manager says, eh, my master's delayed, no big deal. I kind of want to be the, 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 the master of this house myself. So he starts taking the food that he was supposed to give to the servant, starts taking the drink. It's all for him. He starts enlisting them in his service. Says that he's whipping, he's beating, he's exploiting them. Do you think the arrival of the son, of the master of the house, to execute justice, and that it is bad news to those servants, it's the greatest of all news? Who's going to protect us? Who's going to vindicate us? Who's going to stand for us? I will, Jesus says. I will. So when you have brushed up against real, legitimate, life-shattering evil, you are not embarrassed of the judgment of God. Quite frankly, you desire it. He's the only one who can ultimately put an end to it and make it right. Now, Let me read to you real quick what Leon Morris says on this issue. He says, the Christian view of judgment means that history moves to a goal. Judgment protects the idea of the triumph of God and of good. It is unthinkable that the present conflict between good and evil should last throughout eternity. Judgment means that evil will be disposed of authoritatively, decisively, finally. Judgment means that in the end, God's will will be perfectly done. It's not a part of the bad news that we need to be embarrassed about. It's a part of the good news. It means that history is moving towards a goal. A glorious end that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because the judge is coming and this is why I think Jesus desires it. And I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. He did come to execute justice in this way. No doubt about it, ultimately. And it's not an expression, it's not a, a, a break in protocol for him here to desire. It's actually another expression of his multifaceted love. Now, I want to say before I move on that um, I wonder if you would agree with me. Whether we are Christian or not, whether we would admit it or not, whether we even know it or not, Everyone 
longs for this day of judgment. Everyone longs for the day when all that's wrong and all the wrong that's been done to us will be made right. The evil made an end of. Two reasons, two kind of pieces of evidence why I would say this, and it's important for you to know this as you go out and, and, and hopefully share the good news with others. Uh, we want to know why even unbelievers are doing the things that they're doing. What is it that their hearts are longing for? And they would might say up front, I hate the idea of judgment. But bottom line is they at the same time are longing for it. Two pieces of evidence to make the case for this, although there could be more. One, look at the stories that we tell. Look at the reactions that we have. By the stories that we tell, here's what I mean. Look at the movies that we watch. In particular, if I could just put cards on the table here, and I know I'm I'm, going to offend some. I'm talking about comic book movies, and I am not a fan of these movies. I I can barely get the appeal, but because I'm a Christian and I see this, I get the appeal. I am not, I, I'm actually amazed at the mass appeal that these sorts of things have. In fact, I was looking at, um, I was listening to one pastor and he was saying, gosh, it's actually really incredible when you think about how popular these Marvel, comic, whatever, DC, these, these movies are. Because he's like, we live in a rational, you know, enlightened, uh, 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 scientific age, right? Where we, pro- we enshrine our reason and, oh, the faith and the fairy tale. And yet here we are shelling out all of our money to see the same basic story repackaged, recycled again and again and again and again. Fairy tale, it would seem. Comic book, the stuff like my little kids are into and these are adults. At first it seems surprising, it seems unexpected. What is the appeal? But then when we look at the storyline, I think we start to get perhaps why. What is the repackaged, recycled storyline? I'll tell it to you. This will save you ten bucks, you know, for the next, the next Marvel. Listen, they're coming out with characters I've never even seen. Why? Because we'll just we'll just eat this up. Like who is Ant Boy or whatever or Wasp Woman? I I I like comic books when I was a kid. I have no idea. Who they, they're just dusting off the archives because we're going to go and watch the same story. But what is it? There's, there's a good guy, there's a bad guy, there's a power source, undoubtedly. The bad guy's gonna get the power source and he's gonna use it for a while to do evil and accomplish what he wants and exploit people. But the good guy, through serious struggle and internal conflict, is gonna come, take the power source and make things right again. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'll sell tickets at the door. Popcorn in the back. No, but you, you hear what I'm saying though, right? Here's the bottom line. Why do we want to see it? We long for that. Like if Superman at the end, now this dates me because I only know like the old stuff. I don't even, I try to think of the villains for the new ones. I don't even know. Like if Superman shakes hands with Lex Luthor at the end, calls a truce, all right, man, we'll just call it a truce. That's not what we long for. The credits start rolling. We're not. We're throwing popcorn at the screen, right? We want to see evil done away with. We all experience the brokenness, the tragedy, the conflict, the turmoil. We want to see a day. We want to imagine a day when that's gone. We long for it. That's why we go watch it play out on the screen. We long for it. Touches something deeper in us. 
getting perhaps a little bit closer to home, second piece of evidence I would give you here is to look at the reactions that we have, in particular to injustice in our own lives. How do you respond when you are unjustly treated? How do others, believe it or not, respond when they are unjustly treated? Well, tell you, the reactions can be on a spectrum, right? There's a whole spectrum. But at bottom, what we are crying out for, however it is that we are responding, we are crying out for a judge to come and make things right. We're crying out for justice. So think with me, why? Why does a person, say, uh, pull back and start to nurse bitterness and maybe uh, uh, kind of do the whole silent treatment thing and the cold shoulder? What is going on in those moments? But I will not let you do what you did to me again. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve me. I'm over here to cry for justice. That's what it is. Make this right. I'm not going to give you any more. It wasn't right what you did. I'm going to make you pay by pulling back from the relationship. The other side of the spectrum would be the more aggressive people among us. Some of us pull away and retreat, kind of do that silent thing. Others of us are ready for the fight. Okay, you hit me, I hit you. We lash back. And it goes all the way into the red towards murder. Why are people killing each other? What's going on? Anger. It's a cry for justice. You go talk about movies. You go, you watch the, the whole, you know, uh, the whole plot line for a lot of these movies is just vengeance, right? So there's movies that are just devoted to that. It's like a whole genre. Vengeance. I've got to make right what was done to me. And crying out for a judge, for justice. There's passive, there's aggressive, there's cold, there's hot on the spectrum. But when we respond, we are this way. We are crying out for the day when wrong will be made right. We're crying out. We may be trying to take it into our own hands, which quite frankly, as we'll see, adds to the problem, makes us part of the problem. But nonetheless, it exposes the fact that we're longing for it. We're longing for it. So if I could summarize what we have seen thus far, I would put it like this. All men and women. Now, this is an important sentence. This is going to set us up to move on. All men and women, deep down, want a God who judges. It's the first part of this sentence. All men and women, deep down, want a God who judges. Now, listen to this. They just don't want a God who has the audacity to judge them. Did you hear that? That's where we're going next. It is divisive, verses 51 to 53 now. I want you to look at those in particular. But again, I'm going to ramp up the speed because I want to make my way to point number four. It is divisive. Uh, Jesus goes on in verse 51 to say, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. <laughs> Here is another time where just Jesus knowingly is pushing our buttons. We just go, wait a minute. I thought that you came for peace on earth. Did we just get done with Christmas? Like, what are the, what are the angels singing over the stable? Hallelujah. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Right? And you're like, I don't think that's how they sounded. I sure hope not. But. 
But isn't that it? Peace! I thought you came to bring peace on earth. And here he goes, I didn't come to bring peace, but division. What's he talking about? Is this another lapse of sin in an otherwise perfect life? No, it's not. As it was with verse 49, what we have here is not a contradiction of love, but yet another expression of it. Because here's what Jesus is getting at, I think. No doubt has he come to bring peace on earth, but getting there is going to be difficult. Why? Because getting there to get humanity to peace with God and then peace on earth, he's going to have to talk about sin. And now here's how it relates to that last sentence I just gave you. Not just their sin. Not just the sin of Rome. That was Israel's desire. Let's talk about their sin. Let's bring in the judge. Get him! Not just the sin of our enemies, not just the sin of our parents, not just the sin of, you know, the friend that hurt us or the injustice that's been done to us, but mine, my junk, the way that I have trusted in myself to bring judgment as I lash back instead of trusting in him, the way that I have exploited others. We are all, to one degree or another, both victim. Yes, absolutely. And victimizer. Both sinned against and sinner. And bottom line is that people aren't going to like that. Not everybody. Jesus essentially is coming at us, giving the truth in love. He is telling us, listen, you need to know, you need to know. I long to cast fire on this earth and make all wrong right. But right now, as it stands, you are on the wrong side of that. The fire is set to fall on you as well. And I, I got to tell you, you got to flee now. If people hear that and there are some whose hearts will be softened and by sovereign grace, they will see their sin and they will repent and they will follow Jesus. But there are others who their hearts will harden in those moments and they will say, fire fall on me, judgment on me. Who, who are you talking about? Needing a savior, me? Who are you to tell me that I don't need a savior? I need a judge, one who, who, who will come and exact judgment on my enemies. On all that they've done wrong, right? I don't need a savior. I do need a judge. Come and get them. Sick them, Jesus. But Jesus would say to any of us who might be in that place, you're not reading it right, you're not hearing me, you're not seeing reality. So he goes on. Coming judgments, not only desirable, divisive, it's also dire. And that's what we see, verses 54 to 59. We see here, and i got to go quickly through this, but Jesus initially is just simply talking about the weather, really, with them. He says, listen, guys, you know how to read the signs of the weather. We might not understand this, because what do we do? Like, my phone wakes me up and tells me what the weather's going to be, right? Oh, it's going to be, you know, I better wear my, my jeans or my jacket today. They had to look outside and kind of get a look. Oh, okay, the clouds or this is happening. And he's saying, you guys are experts at reading the weather. You know, and then you respond appropriately. Okay, we need to do X, Y, and Z because this sort of weather is coming. But he's going, you guys have no clue. When it comes to the sign of the times, the arrival of Jesus ultimately ushers the world into the last days on its march to the last day. 
And he's saying nobody seems to understand the crisis point, the dire straits that we are in in these moments. You're not taking me seriously. You're acting like the master's never coming. You're acting like you're all good and you're not getting it. With a little parable, he tells there in verses 58 to 59, he cuts to the chase, and I wanted to read that with you. Look at verse 58. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The basic sense of his words here, I I think, is this. Regardless of what you think about yourself, how right you are, how wrong they are, you are on the wrong side of the law, I assure you. And you don't want the judge to come and find you in this sort of position. What you need, what you want to do, what I'm desperately asking you to do is to settle the account, settle the issue outside of court. You don't want to wait for the last day courtroom. When you stand before a holy God who is not impressed with your exterior but sees through all of that to your heart, stuff you don't even realize is there. He sees it. And because he is a just God, he will let the fire fall. He will do away with evil. You're going to be on the wrong side of it. Settle outside of court before it's too late. My hope is that even in this room, there may be some who, as we're talking about these things, hearts are softening and we're thinking, man, Okay, yeah, I see this. I came in perhaps thinking what I needed most in my life was a judge. Now that I hear Nick talk about it, I get it. I want a judge who's going to make all of their wrong right. But now I'm realizing what I need more than anything is a savior. Because I've not only been sinned against, I myself have sinned against the Holy God. And it's not going to go well for me. So how? I want to settle things outside of court. I want to take care of this now before the judgment and the fire. How do I do that? Well, this takes us now to the amazing verse that you may have wondered why I skipped it. Back up in verse 50. I want to go there now and I want to end on this with you. We're going to talk about now this idea that the judgment is in fact delayed. Back in verse 49, you remember Jesus is expressing his desire to bring in the last day judgment, his desire to make all wrong right and do away with evil. Well, then the question we inevitably have to ask is, well, what in the world, your God, make it happen now? Why wait? Why delay? Why put off that day of judgment? What's the reason? And that's really what verse 50 comes in to answer for us. But look at the two verses together. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. The reason he's delaying 
judgment, brothers and sisters, is because he's going to first take that judgment himself. This discussion of his baptism may at first seem confusing to you, but we know from texts like Mark 10, 38 and others that Jesus here is referring to his death on the cross. Certainly he's not referring to his baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist because that's past tense. That's already happened. He's talking about a baptism that is coming and coming soon. And his distress is great in light of it. He's talking about the baptism that his baptism there in the Jordan signified, namely his solidarity with sinners and his willingness to go down into the belly of death to redeem them for them. And so the image, baptizo, it's this idea of immersion. We talked about that when we did baptisms here. This idea of being immersed. This idea of being plunged. This idea of just being surrounded by, in this case, the wrath of God on the cross. Or we might say, the holy fire that you and I deserve, that he came to cast on, it will first be cast upon him. No wonder then Jesus would say here, how great is my distress. Though he had done no wrong, though he had only known perfect communion with the Father, reliance upon him, he knew that a severance was coming. He knew that he was going to have to drink the cup, not of his Father's good pleasure, but of his Father's wrath. And with that word distress, do we not think of Gethsemane and him on his face, you know, sweating drops of blood? God, is there any other way? With the word distress, do we not think about his screams on the cross? You, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With the word distress... Here, do we not discern the way of our deliverance? If I could put it perhaps memorably, our deliverance comes at the cost of his great distress. What does he say? Well, if we were trying to answer the question, how, how do I settle outside of court? You say settle along the way because the last aid courtroom is not going to go well. What does it look like? What does it mean? How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. Jesus goes into the courtroom on our behalf. That is what Calvary is. It is him making an appearance for you and I before the end. He shows up before the judge on our behalf, negotiates a payment for yours and my sin. Oh, I know they deserve fire, Father, but let it come on me. I will pay to every last penny. Did you catch that? You will not get out until you have paid the very last penny. That is precisely what Jesus pays there in the courtroom of heaven, there at Calvary. Come colliding to earth. It's amazing. That's why it's, it's incredible 
When it's all said and done, what does he say? What does he cry out? What are his last words according to John's gospel? It is what? Finished. It's the same Greek word that's used in our text. Teleo, it's accomplished. It would be another one. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. Well, there he is in the courtroom of heaven, brought down to earth early to delay it for us and make a way of salvation for us. There he is saying, it's been accomplished. It is done. And here's the most amazing thing, brothers and sisters, about this. Now, what he has done is made a way not only for the coming judgment to be delayed, but he's made a way for that coming judgment to be not bad news for us, but the greatest news in all the world. We have no business. We have no business benefiting from the last day judgment. We deserve to be on the other side. We deserve the lake of fire, but because Jesus drinks the lake of fire, because Jesus is plunged, baptized into the lake of fire for us on the cross, the day of judgment is the day of our redemption. Par excellence. What else are you going to say? Last thing I'll leave you with is this. This credit, this payment, is not automatically transferred to your account. Right? There needs to be a settlement. There needs to be an exchange between you and the Savior outside of court. Let's talk about this. In other words, there needs to be repentance. And owning up to your side of the problem, not just everybody else's. We'll talk about that later. You can't even deal with that appropriately until you realize how offensive you are to God and how gracious He is to you. Then it just transforms the way you're going to deal with your enemies. So, first, it's repentance, admission of guilt, and recognition of a need for Savior, and then it's fleeing to the cross and embrace of Him with all that you have, knowing that He has accomplished the payment, He's paid it in full to the very last penny for you. Let's pray. God, who are we to benefit from your work on the cross? Who are we that the day of judgment is the day of our redemption and ultimate deliverance? God, your gospel, it is, it is insane. It doesn't make any sense. Nobody does this. You are so counterintuitive, so counterrational. Because this world is upside down. We don't get it. One day you're going to make it right. And the same love that explodes from your heart will explode unfettered from our own. Gosh, what a day that will be. I pray right now we would do business with you, God. I pray that if there are people in this room need to settle things outside of court before it's too late. Let it be settled. It's not a pledge of our own righteousness to pay you back. It's a receiving of your righteousness on our behalf. In grace. Through faith. Amen.